Welcome to the Simply Authentic Podcast with Angie and Tanya, where we hope to inspire you to dream big and push past your fear, empower you to take charge of your own life, and challenge you to be the most authentic self you can be. Welcome back to the Simply Authentic Podcast. I'm Angie Mullings. And I'm Tanya Murphan. So guys, today we're really excited about our guest. We have Anne Roderick Jones with us of the Ozarks True Crime Podcast. So if you are a fellow podcaster, you probably know who she is. And her podcasts currently talk about some things that have happened here in the Ozarks. So we're going to get started and let Annie, which I call her Annie, so that's how you'll hear me refer to her. We are going to get started and hear who Annie is, her background. So Annie, why don't you get us started by telling us where you grew up and what went from there, how you got to your real job. (laughs) Sure. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Um, so I grew up in Springfield, Missouri. My, my mom lived in Springfield and my dad actually lived in Hollister. So I okay. went back and forth, but I went to school in Springfield. Um, I went to Mark Twain and Jared and Park Pew and all my family is from the Springfield area. Uh, my husband actually went to Greenwood, so he's from oh. the area as well. And, uh, we both live in New York city. We moved here in 2007 so quite some time ago but we go back to the ozarks quite a bit um i go to work and to see everyone there yeah and yeah um, i'm a journalist now so very good so you've written for several travel publications i i noticed um connie nest and travel and leisure what what other publications have you written for and and in what format Uh, a lot over the years. I started out in bridal at the Knot magazine, and I worked there for five years, so I exclusively wrote about weddings. Um, I interned at Savoir magazine, so I did some food writing, and um, I've written for uh, Southern Living, uh, a lot of the Hearst and Condé Nast publications, and primarily, like you said, travel and leisure. I'm writing about travel um, pretty much more than anything these days. Vogue, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, ones you might find in a supermarket <laughs> and then some yes. that you don't and then some newspapers yeah. as well but not you know not daily newspaper reporting or anything just more travel um, and lifestyle got right. it so Annie just to kind of highlight that I was looking at your Instagram one night and saw that you had recently wrote an article for travel and leisure magazine about a place in Italy that you travel to every year and stay a month with your husband tell us about that yeah uh, it's just this it's a tiny little town it's called Ospedaletti and um it's it's really small it's right on the water it's very chill it's not pretentious or fancy um very simple but beautiful and you know we rent an apartment just a small little one bedroom apartment um and we stay there um for a a month a little bit more in the summertime which has been really nice and um 
you know, not, both of us are really lousy at Italian, but we're trying to learn. <laughs> and because it is small, um, you kind of get to know all the people there, which is really lovely. And it has a great bike path if you're into biking or um, running. And um, it's on the water, so you can, you know, you can swim laps and you can kind of make up for all that food that you eat all the time while you're there. Yeah. So it's, it's really, it's really nice. Um, and because we're in New York, it's a, you know, it's a pretty quick flight. Um, yeah. You know, just nonstop flight, which is very nice. So yes, that's awesome. So with all of your travels, what are your favorite places that you've been? Oh, uh, um, gosh, I, I really um, loved Laos. I, I like mm. Southeast um, Asia quite a bit. It just mm. feels so different, I think. You know, you, the language is different. The, um, the culture is so different and interesting, and the food is so unique and great. So I really liked Laos and Cambodia a lot. We did those two oh. together. Um, I'd say that's probably one of my favorite areas of the world to travel to. Yeah. That's interesting. I did not expect that answer. No, neither did I. We we may have to have you back on just to talk about travel, um, period. But I know, you know, you're trained as a journalist. And how does a a journalist decide that they're going to do a podcast on true crime? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. Because I obviously was not trained in anything remotely resembling true crime. I was writing about like bridesmaid dresses. Uh Right. Um, (laughs) But uh, I was, uh, I started listening to true crime podcasts like so many people started with Serial and listened to Dirty John. And so I was um, thinking about the, the first season and the subject of the three missing women. And I thought, well, maybe I'll write a book that's like, or write, write a feature article because that's kind of what I just knew. But, you know, sometimes when there isn't this like tidy ending, um, it, it really serves better to do it on a a podcast than say a book and sure so I just kind of thought like well maybe this would make an interesting podcast and it would give me a chance to really dive in versus like if you write an article you only have you know let's say 3,000 words versus a podcast is just you have all the time in the world that you want or right you, know, you can it's kind of like the wild west you can kind of just do whatever so true um I decided that I thought that might be a, a good outlet for it to really be able to dig in and do interviews and all the things that you want to do to like, you know, kind of do the, the subject justice. Yeah. Yeah. So the Springfield three, so I know what you're talking about and probably a lot of locals also know what you're talking about, but the, the three missing women. So give us kind of a snapshot into exactly who we are talking about there. Sure. So it was um, two young women from Springfield, Missouri, Stacy McCall and Susie Streeter, along with Susie's mother, um, who disappeared in 1992. And it was on two of the girls' graduation night. They went to Kickapoo High School, and um, and they've been missing ever since. And you know, I think it's always been something that everyone in the community has has known about and still talks about um, yeah. because it's just such a you know, it's it's such a, a really sad and really um, just unique case to have three people disappear like that. And yeah. it's something that our community, because, you know, the Ozarks is so tight-knit, um, I think they're, they've always really been invested in that. So I kind of just wanted to um, explore that story and speak to people who were involved in it. And um, the podcast really gave us kind of a new platform to do something like that. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I'm glad you asked the question, Tanya, because I don't think we can assume that everyone knows the story. We lived it. We were here. We, you know, but it happened 30 years ago. So right. um, there are listeners out there who, you know, maybe they know just a little bit about what happened, right. but they don't really understand how it affected Springfield and, and what a huge story, national story it became. Yeah. Yeah. So was it hard to go back 30 years later, here we are, and you're coming back to people who have talked about this for a long time, you're interviewing persons involved with the family, with the, the police force with detectives with you know, you're, you're going back to a story that's 30 years old, but still, it's palpable, probably, to most of those people. Was it hard to get the subject brought back up again 30 years later? I think it was hard for a couple of different reasons, one of which is that some people, you know, 30 years is a really long time, so some people might not remember specific details, or some people might not be alive that were working the case at the time, you know, particular, you know, maybe certain detectives or judges or whatever that sure. might be. But... Um, I think it was also difficult because people, some people didn't know what a podcast was, which I totally understand. Sure. And I'm sure mm -hmm. you all kind of deal with that. Yes. Like explaining like, this is how we're going to tell your story. And, you know, we're not out to exploit anyone. We, you know, we really, the owner of the company that I work with, the production company, um, we got um, trauma training certified. So we were mm -hmm. able to like, mm -hmm. you know, really try to work in a way that was respectful and not sensationalizing it, but, sure. you know, also difficult in talk to, talking to say, um, you know, Janice McCall, who is one of the mm. girls who's missing her mother. And, you know, that's a, that's a really sensitive subject and Absolutely. Um, we wanted to be respectful to her. And so it was difficult in that way. You know, you, you really try not to get too emotionally involved in, in any story but that's mm -hmm. that's difficult when you have someone like that that's from your town and that yeah. you know that you knew you knew about everything growing up and I was 12 years old when it happened so you have that like that tie in that way but knowing that you're speaking with someone's mother and and you know siblings we spoke with Bart Streeter and just um, being really respectful of that but also you know trying to lay everything out as accurately as possible and presenting different situations yeah so when you were talking to everyone and uh, Obviously, I've, I've, I've listened to your podcast, and I've, I've heard lots of different interviews over the years, things like that. So this is not a, a, an unknown concept, but it was, you know, kind of the good old boys. They, were, were there mistakes that the police made? Certainly a different time and place um, from what we have in Springfield now. But um, how did you feel about that? What, did you feel as you were interviewing people that there was some kind of a cover-up or that things were just mishandled? What, what were your, what was going through your head whenever you were interviewing people? Um, I think that maybe some people have said that. I, you know, I can't speak to that because I wasn't working the case at the time. I wasn't a journalist sure. at the time. Um, but I think it was just, you know, really the, the initial crime scene was compromised and there's mm -hmm. nothing that anyone on the police force could have done about that. That was just, you know, when they got there, and I know that I've worked with Rick Bookout, who's wonderful. He was the um, first officer on the scene and, you know, has still is still to this day doing interviews trying to help get this case solved. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, that was already compromised whenever he walked in. And then, 
you know, they were just getting so many tips. I know that there were some national um, publications that came in and, you know, made it di more difficult for the local police department. But, um, you know, as far as it being a good old boys club, I don't, I don't really know that. I do know that we had some difficulty during the podcast getting interviews. Um, but I can say that I met with um, the Springfield Police Department when I was back in Springfield about a month ago, and hmm. they have, um, you know, they have dedicated people on this team that want to solve this really badly. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, I, I could never under, like, even understand why someone would say it's a cover-up because they really are still 30 years later working, working to do that. So, um, you know, they've, they've been really good about if I get a tip, you know, I might send it over to them and they've been good about responding to that since the podcast has come out. So I, I certainly appreciate that. Um, I think everyone really wants to get it solved. It's, I'm sure yeah. it's mm -hmm. incredibly frustrating, um, in, you know, to, to those involved more so the families than anyone. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the, in the podcast, you talk about the Springfield Police Department not returning your calls or your emails. So that's a great update for you to give us that when you were here last, you spoke to them and they, it seems to me, I hear you saying they were willing to speak to you in person and openly told you they're still working to solve it and hope to. Mm -hmm. Sure. I mean, and they didn't give me any kind of updates or leads, you know, that's sure. And, and I understand why I know that it's still an ongoing case. And I hope that, you know, Janice is getting the information that she, you know, wants to get. But as far as, um, you know, speaking with me, they were, they were really open to it. We had a meeting and, um, and so, yeah, I, I know that they probably get a lot of requests for press for for this particular case, yeah. so I'm sure mm -hmm. that they have to be pretty selective about when they do speak to someone, and I certainly understand that. I was coming in as, you know, someone doing a podcast that had not really been done about this, you know, in depth right. at least, and asking for those type of interviews. So, um, but yeah, I, I felt like that was really uh, a really a really good step. That yeah. is good. Agree. Yeah, you um, you talk to a lot of different people. As you mentioned, you talk to family members, you talk to law enforcement, you talk to um, friends of of Stacy and and those friends telling you, you know, their side of the story. But I'm wondering if anyone who you talked to, did you feel like they were holding back on you? Again, it could just be because I didn't understand the process of a podcast and who is this person who's going to ask me these questions. But did you feel like anyone had more of a story to tell that they were kind of holding back on? Um, I mean, no, I really don't. I think everyone who is generous enough to give us their time really, I mean, would sit with us for hours and talk about this. So, you know, Janice in particular sat with us at the library center the entire day. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, really the entire day actually went to a doctor's appointment and came back and finished telling her story. So I don't feel that anyone was um, holding back per se. I do think that there were people that we wanted to interview that mm -hmm. um, didn't want to be interviewed. So I think it was kind of like if they gave us their time, they gave us what I felt was really a generous amount of time and right. um, and stories. But in you know, there were a lot of people that we, um, you know, weren't able to, or didn't want to be interviewed. So that was mm -hmm. unfortunate. It happens. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, for I sure. get turned down for interviews all the time. It's not new, but you really want yeah. it to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that, you know, this isn't a CSI episode and you're not here to solve the crime. You're here to tell the story. 
as a journalist, but was there anything that to you felt like new information that had not been told all those years ago? And, you know, obviously we have social media now and we, we have so many different ways to communicate, even through email that 30 years ago we didn't have. So was there anything that stood out to you that, oh gosh, you know, 30 years ago that could have made a difference? I think probably more so in the second season when we talked about the Feeney family, we had, yeah, and, and with both seasons, we had, you know, I, I had numerous emails of tips or theories, um, and some of them were certainly worth pursuing and looking into that I hadn't heard before, um, you know, but as far as one that could have maybe changed the course, maybe, maybe not. It was a young girl who, you know, said that she had um, saw John Feeney's car in his driveway and um, he was the suspect in mm -hmm. a case um, for the murder of his wife and two children. And so she said that she had told police that her dad verified it and that they had never followed up. That said, you know, she's a very young girl. You, you know, what do you remember at the time? You know, I'm, I'm not discounting anyone, but it was certainly information that someone who was, a, you know, a, more of a, in a professional field, whether they were a detective or an attorney, said, like, I wish we could have had that information at the time. Yeah. 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 I remember listening to that part and actually thinking to myself, you know, that would have been really helpful to know. Mm -hmm. And again, we're many years down the road since the Feeney murders as well. Before we switch over to talking about that case, Annie, what was your impression of Bart Streeter? I enjoyed listening to him talk about his mom and sister. And I know that we hadn't really got that opportunity, well, ever. We heard a lot from, of course, Janice McCall mm -hmm. and her family. But the Bart Streeter interview was interesting to me. What was your impression of him? Um, I thought he seemed very earnest and very vulnerable. Um, it took a lot for me to get that interview with him. He definitely turned me down a lot. Yeah. And he has a, you know, he certainly has a distrust of, um, of the media. And I can mm -hmm. understand why I saw some of the, you know, some of the clips that he had talked about, particularly television clips on national stations that had really um, made him and his family look you know, it was a pretty poor representation, and I could see yeah. how that would be really hurtful. Yes. Um, if that's something that you had nothing to do with and your mom and um, sister are gone, that I can't imagine what that would do to a person. Right. And to be treated as um, the way he's been treated, and he has certainly had his issues with the law, and I, you know, I don't discount that in any way. Does it mean he would do something like this? I'm not, you know, those, are, those seem like two very different things. Right. So... Um, again, I'm, I'm not one to say whether he did it or not or should be a suspect or not, but I, I felt in my interview with him, and I had many pre-interviews with him, and um, I, I felt that he was, he was very earnest. He really owned up to you know, a lot of the things that he had done wrong in his life and the regrets that he had. And so yeah. I, for, from an interview, interview perspective, I really appreciated his vulnerability. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, agree what with did that. You all I, think of it? Well, yeah. that's what I was going to say. As a mm -hmm. listener, mm -hmm. I, I, it was so raw to me yeah. to hear his perspective because 
the story's not been told before like you told it. You mm-hmm. know, we've, it's, a, it's a flash across the media. It's a Dateline episode. And, and so I think it was important for us to hear his side of the story. I think so, too. Yeah. 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 So I'm curious about um, Robert Craig Cox. You you interviewed him. And of course, there was um, during your interviews, you also interviewed was it it was his girlfriend at the time and her daughter that gave some input and and maybe misled police in the beginning, um, saying that he was somewhere he wasn't that that night or that day. but I also am interested to hear what you think if he is grandstanding. He says he will come clean once his mother has passed. Um, what what was your impression of him? Well, I didn't interview him for this, unfortunately. Um, he he turned down my um, my request to be interviewed in person. But I do um, communicate with him via email, and I'm still trying to get an interview with him. And um, I hope that happens just Mm -hmm. so it can kind of, you know, close a circle. Um, I think that it was his, um, his at the time, fiance, girlfriend's daughter that all lived together that I did interview. And that was really, I thought, very eye opening. She Mm -hmm. was also very generous with her time and her stories for me. Her mother has Alzheimer's, so I wasn't able to interview her. But um, gotcha. Yeah, so she, I mean, I thought she had some really interesting stories about him. Um, I think his mother has died, if I'm not mistaken. So oh, I, really? I, okay. whenever I, um, you know, communicate with him via, it's an email system through a prison, um, trying to secure an interview, um, I, I definitely get, you know, get that part ignored. I think he probably just wants a pen pal, which is not something mm. I'm here for. <laughs> but, right, huh? <laughs> um, I, I don't know about grandstanding, you know, I'm not like a, a psychologist. I, I don't know, you know, what, what he presents in terms of whether he's truthful or not. I do know that his past record shows that he's probably capable of doing something like this, but I honestly, yeah. you know, I don't know whether he's telling the truth. I don't mm-hmm. know that his track record shows like a great deal of truth, but yeah, again, you know, who knows? I, I hope that I right. do get an interview with him at some point and certainly we'll make that, you know, a bonus episode and um, whether, whatever else is on tap for the podcast in the future of it. We want to make, you know, anyone that we can get an interview with after it's come out, which has been done. Um, so hopefully that'll happen with Robert Craig Cox. We'll see. Absolutely. Yeah. And so that kind of leads into a question of what do you do with any leads that you get? Are you contacted frequently? Uh, Yeah, I'm definitely contacted frequently. And, um, you know, I think if they make sense, then um, we, we pursue them and spend time looking into them and researching them, um, researching the people behind them. And then um, we also will pass them along to the Springfield Police Department, of course, too, because really that's, you know, that's their job and they're the professionals in this. So, of course, yeah, Yeah, we pass that along to them. Yeah. Great. Great. Well, now I guess we'll switch to the to the Feeney murders and, and talk a little bit about that, because that was season two or three for you. Two. Two. Okay. So, um, how did, how did those interviews compare, um, with, with the Springfield three murders or I'm sorry, three Springfield three missing women? Well, just what you said, honestly, because there was, um, you know, 
these were murders and murder victims. And so it was, um, you know, it was definitely something that had happened to a family versus um, you don't really know what happened with Mm -hmm. the, you know, the Springfield three, you're not, you're not totally sure. So you're really in there and the, you know, the first season is kind of about, um, you know, people guessing who, who, who did, who do they think did this? Who's capable? What happened to them? Where could they be? Um, let's try to find answers versus this one is who did it, um, more than anything. And Mm -hmm. so, and it's really kind of like, did one person do it or not? You know, there's, that's, I think that's really how people looked at it or how people felt when they listened to it was whether someone, um, John Feeney, um, did this or did not do it. And so it's just kind of more, uh, I guess it leaves the listener with like a different question in their head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, who were most of, or who were some of the most impressionable people you talked to during that? And I know you talked about the young girl that might've saw his car in the mm-hmm. driveway that night. Mm-hmm. Who were others that you talked to? Well, certainly um, Cheryl's mother, you know, the fact that she let mm-hmm. us into her home um, and, you know, this had happened to her daughter and her grandchildren. And so, yeah. um, you know, just something so, so horrible to happen, the worst thing that could happen to a person. And she let us into her her living room and showed us photo albums of her daughter and, you know, answered mm-hmm. every single question that we asked of her and hugged us and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, just, it was, it was really, really kind of her to do that. And it, it, I definitely felt so appreciative of her time. Um, so she was certainly one, um, I think the, some of the attorneys that had worked on the case, um, Rita, she's, she's, uh, you know, such an interesting interview and she knew John and went to high school with John and then ended up working with him as an attorney and then became a police officer. So she kind Mm -hmm. of was like, you know, did it all. Um, and she was very convicted in the way that she felt. So it was interesting to hear, um, her perspective when, you know, some people, teachers that we may have interviewed, um, you know, some would say, I don't think so, or some would say absolutely. So it was just interesting to hear people's opinion on that that were actually involved or knew someone there. Mm -hmm. And do you continue to get follow-ups on that one? People calling in or, or writing you or whatever with leads, potential leads. Um, yeah, yeah. Maybe not as much leads right now, more like, um, you know, whether they think they did it or whatever, or he did it. Um, Mm -hmm. I get that. The one we did have that, the lead Brittany, who we felt like was pretty solid. It was, you know, I think it was worth spending the time on that and making, um, adding some new information, mm-hmm. but yeah, I right. mean, there's always, there's always people emailing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there are. So in regards to, to both stories, and I would say I could probably guess what your answer is going to be, but because they're different stories, which one is there one of them that would leave you with a certain feeling more so than the other? And I don't even know how to describe that feeling that I'm asking you. Is there one that, um, which I'm assuming the Springfield three took more time. Was there more time involved? So therefore you're, you were maybe more invested in the Springfield three than you were the Feenies. What would your opinion be? Well, I think with the Springfield Three, um, 
you hope one day it gets solved. Yes. You, you have that like hope. Agree. And um, you know that there are people um, that are related to the women that are out there and you want that to happen for them. You yeah. want it to happen for the police department. And so I think there's like that hope versus the um, the second season. It's like there's a double jeopardy. So like there's probably nothing more that will happen with that case, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. Um, right. So I think you... Um, you kind of just, you know, you're not like, oh, it's over and done, but right. um, you feel like there's a little bit more of like a lid on the box with that one versus the other one is just open and, you know, you, you explore leads a little bit more carefully. Um, I think the third season where I've just started writing it this week. And so, yeah. yeah and so um, that one, I, I probably won't give too much info away, but that one is, um, It'll be interesting because it's something that happened a long time ago, but it's ongoing now. So I'll oh. give you that as like a little teaser. But okay. um, perfect. that one I think will be, it'll allow the listener to follow along in real time. Yeah. Okay. And when do you expect for your third season to come out? How long does it take you to produce these, Annie? Well, I don't do all the work. We have a, I work with a production team that I'm in partnership with called Edit Audio, and they do all of the production. They do editing they make all the like great little noises that you hear in the music yeah. and so my mm-hmm. job is to really research um and write and then interview yeah. so more on um on that end so we start out i start out by writing it and um we've already done one interview this will be more ongoing but i think we plan to launch this at the end of the year so okay mm-hmm. yeah Okay. Awesome. Awesome. We'll we'll look forward to that. Yes, we sure will. You You know, I'm wondering, you're interviewing people that in in one case, you still have three missing women. And I I don't know, as a family member of one of those, I I think it could be equally disheartening. First of all, you've got, you know, the missing three who you don't, you have no idea what happened to your family members. And that I, I don't know, I, I, that would be very difficult to live with. And then on the other side, if you believed someone got off free of of not being convicted, Mm -hmm. then, okay, if he didn't do it, who did? And is anybody looking into that? And if he did do it and got away with it, where does that leave you? So I I don't know, either one would be difficult. Yeah. You know, I can, we on our podcast, mostly interview people who have a great story, you have a great story, we we get to talk about fun things, you're interviewing people (laughs) that are talking about murder and, you know, crime. And I'm I'm curious if, um, if that weighs on you at all. Um, That's a really good question. I'd I mean, I guess it does to some extent, um, but for so much of my career, I did interview people that had fun stories, or they yeah. were like a celebrity that's been has their publicist saying what they can talk about and what mm-hmm. they can't, or right. you know, a chef that has a new product line, and it, it is really fun, and I I loved that part of my career, but. To me, this is so much more raw. The fact that mm-hmm. someone is willing to talk to you and tell you a story about, um, you know, a family member who has been murdered or who is missing, it's like, it's such a privilege, I guess, that someone's yeah. willing to trust you with that story. So I think that that is something that I I like more for that reason, that the subjects are really heavy, but, mm-hmm. you know, it just depends. After I finished interviewing Janice, I did... My mom and grandma lived together in Springfield, and I went back to their apartment, and I, I felt 
really bummed out, like just really sad. Cause I think I was yeah. with my mom and grandma too. And, yeah. um, but then, you know, sometimes I'll be totally fine after an interview and maybe someone on the production team might, you know, be upset. And we have this yeah. really great, um, support group. There's usually four of us who work together and the, um, owner of the company might say like, all right, after we interviewed, for example, after we interviewed Cheryl's, um, mother, we all went to um, a lake in Lake of the Ozarks and went swimming and just mm-hmm. like gotcha. did not look at our phones. Like if right. someone needed to cry, they could cry, but like just right. kind of, you know, maybe we might do, we did some jazzercise classes when we were yeah. there last Ooh. time, which was super fun and like a great way to kind of get out of your head a little bit. Yeah. So yeah. I think there's now, there's so much more focus on self-care when you think mm-hmm. about these things and absolutely that um, you can kind of decompress a little bit after a, a heavy interview. Yeah. yeah. So that makes me think of what you said in the beginning of the podcast that you guys went through trauma training mm-hmm. before you did the Springfield three podcast or interviews. So did that some of that training come back to help all of you cope with these heavy stories? Yeah, so we did the trauma reporting um training after the Springfield three before the Feenies and okay. it definitely did because after Springfield three, it was just like interview, boom, right? Boom. Don't think about it. Just get it done. And so then it was really with the Feeney case that we were like, okay, let's, um, let's take some time out to, you know, process this, to do what you need to do. You know, some people right. need nothing after, and some people do need some time to like, you know, kind of work through some of the really sad and hard things that they listen to. And then also just um, the way you speak to people, you know, some people don't, maybe someone wants to be called like a survivor instead of a victim or whatever that may be. You kind of learn um, how to approach people better in those situations that Hmm. have gone through that kind of thing. Because again, it's totally different than interviewing, you know, a yoga influencer or whatever. Right. So yeah, yeah, it was really helpful. Um, It was great. Well, I think the way that you've done your podcast, your empathy really comes through. I I like the fact that you show patience with with the people that you're interviewing and and you can tell that, um, you know, you're very thoughtful in your in your questions and and uh, what they're going through. Thank you. That means a lot. I feel like you all are really good at interviewing, too. Oh, thanks. Well, thank you. (laughs) We're still working on it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with Angie. And I was thinking of well, we've been talking that I wanted to compliment you on how well done your podcast is. And by that, you can just tell you, you did this for the right reasons, Annie, not for the wrong ones. And I think, you know, a lot of publicity is given to the media and probably journalists who might be sensationalizing things. And I don't think you did that whatsoever. I think you, you're telling a story and in the case of the Springfield three to maybe get it solved one day. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. thank you. And a lot of that is really like the team I work with Steph, the owner. Um, when we started before we went into a partnership on this, um, that was something that's really important to her too. And so, you know, I think about that when I'm in interviews and, you know, I imagine that if I maybe worked with someone that was different, they would be asking, like, being like, you need to ask this question, or you need to say this to her, or get her to say this. And um, because of the partnership that I have, you know, it's really about the people before the story. And I I do Mm -hmm. think it's like, 
you don't really need to sensationalize these. They're no. pretty Mm-mm. sensational on their own. You Agree. Know? So, yeah, right. but the team is really, really empathetic and wonderful. Yeah. And I would hope that by you sort of highlighting and going back and revisiting the the missing three, maybe it will shed some light on something. Maybe someone will remember something. I think, you know, if it's locked away, we've obviously talked about how the police department is still investigating, Mm -hmm. but there's still a small, you know, quadrant of people who are talking about it. You get on, you know, a podcast with a, maybe a broader reach and someone will know something mm-hmm. or hear something. And, you know, I think our hope and prayer is that someday that will be solved for all involved. Yeah, that's, I mean, you all know this having a podcast, but a podcast is one, it reaches a different audience, you know, that yes. may not have heard of this particular case or heard of your subject. You're also reaching a much broader audience, you know, it's, it's not like it's the local news. You're, you know, people right. all over the world listen and, and care about these things. So you're getting these, you know, you're getting these 20-year-olds who are listening to this who weren't even born, which, yeah. you know, it does, yeah. it does help, you know, open that up um, just at least to hear the story. Yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. So I have to ask before we wrap up here, there was another murder around here in the Ozarks that happened in 1994 in Fremont Hills, the Ravel murder of George Ravel's wife, Lisa Ravel, was killed in their home. So is that something you've thought of doing an episode on or a season on? We have thought about it because a lot of people suggest that one. Um, So I think that, you know, down the road, we certainly plan to make this, you know, you know, more than two or three seasons. So I think it's a possibility um, one thing I think we just have to be really mindful of is that people don't want to hear the same law enforcement and journalists mm. over and over. It's like right. mm-hmm. you can only interview so many people. So I think for us, for this next one, just moving out a little bit to where it's a different police force, a different, right. you know, gotcha. local journalists. And um, we don't want to make it too redundant for people, I guess, is yeah. kind yeah. of what we're looking at. But I think, you know, I think that's such an interesting story. And people are really passionate about that story too. And I had never heard anything about that until we started working on um, maybe even the Feeney case. And so, really? you know, it's also the same attorney, I think Eskenosi worked yes, on that yes. one. So you, you know, we kind of started hearing about it. And so, yeah, I think it's something we'd certainly consider. Yeah. Okay. I've in conversations with friends, you're a topic well, your podcast is a topic, but <laughs> not you in particular, Annie, but because okay. I know you, I can say, yeah, I, you yeah. know, I know her, but um, that when you're sitting around and I think Angie and I have done this before because we knew we were going to interview you, you start talking about all these things and people start giving their theories and I heard this and what'd you think about this? And so re-listening to your podcast just kind of brings it all back up. And, and those of us that grew up around here, we remember, you know, how old we were and what was happening in our lives at that time. Mm -hmm. So I think that's why it's natural for that Ravel crime Mm -hmm. to come up as well. So, yeah. Yeah. And you remember that? Uh-huh. Do you remember the rebellion? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah. yeah, I needed to get into that one a little bit more. I can interview yeah. you then if we do that one. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Good idea. 
<laughs> well, we are going to wrap this up. And I am so glad that you have joined us and yeah. and that your Ozarks link, even though you haven't lived here since you moved away from going to college, I still feel like you're a hometown girl, Annie. And yeah. Thank and you. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. So we'd like to end on a real estate story if you have one, because that's our day job that we do. We always like to hear if our guests Um, have some sort of story they could tell. I I guess the only real estate story that I have is that um, my husband and I have bought real estate over the years, and everything we've bought, we've bought sight unseen. Oh, wow. Really? Yes. <laughs> Risk Everything. takers then. That's what I we've know. got. <laughs> and they've all and they've all been like wonderful places to live. Wow, that's wow. awesome. No regrets. No regrets. So oh, now good. I feel like if we ever buy something else, I wanna like keep that up. I'll yeah. be your dream I'll be your dream client because I'm not gonna be a diva about anything. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I love that. And really, you know, in our industry, that is something that for years and years, it it was really unheard of. I mean, yes, Mm -hmm. those things happened occasionally when there were, you know, dramatic things going on in people's lives, they needed to move quickly. But in the last couple of years, especially during COVID, we dealt with that a lot. So that's very interesting that you guys have always bought that way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you do go to the inspection and you're like, of course. Yeah. So far it's, it's worked out. Yeah. I mean, you can even talk to neighbors before now. It's just like, it's exactly. It's really interesting how much you can do just like we're doing this, you know, online. Mm -hmm. It's like, you can do so much of that and, you know, just some, some good house stocking there. Yeah. Oh yeah. Find out everything. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's fun. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, this has been you. interesting. Yeah, yes, we can't wait to hear. So You're welcome. Yeah, yeah, and we'll be uh, promoting your third season when it Whatever comes out. Whatever that is. Yes, towards the end of the year. Yeah. All right. Thank you. All, All right. Thanks, so much. Thanks thank Annie. You. Take care. Okay. Thanks for listening to the Simply Authentic Podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Be sure to listen to us on your favorite podcasting app. Thank you.